0: Ephesians 4, we're in a short section, verse 17 through 24. Something happens in my neighborhood every month, and I'm certain it happens in your um, neighborhood too. It's it's the refuse week. You know, when it's this is beyond garbage. This is when our neighborhood decides to trade their furniture with each other. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It happens all the time. I put stuff out on the curb and... And you don't have to wait for somebody to pick it up. Somebody, somebody likes my stuff, and they take it. My wife's into this, too. Um, I've come home several times and discovered new pieces of furniture, painted and distressed, living in my house. And she's so proud of it, and, and I am, too. It's great. It's awesome. Um, something something that to someone isn't very useful. A little time, a little effort, transformed into a treasure, right? Right? Um, That should sound familiar to you because that's the picture of what God does to and for his people. You got no purpose. In fact, we've gone through this together in this letter in Ephesians where Paul describes the problem pretty horrifically. You're dead. In your transgressions and sins, you're dead. You're without hope and you're without God and you have no purpose, you're dead that's a pretty bleak outcome, but that's where this whole story starts. But but the great news is that Jesus did his reclaiming, restorative work on us, and now we become his treasured possession. We are the people of God. That's what we are. And now this thing that had no function before other than to hurt itself and hurt other people gets transformed into something useful for the king. That's the same picture. You want another picture? I'll give you another one. If you have time today and you walk over to the commons, you can quietly walk into the prayer space that has just been completed. And if you go in there, all you're gonna see is thousands of everyday ordinary two-by-fours. Just stuff you go down to Home Depot, stuff you never think about. It's got knots in it, there's cracks in it. There's just two-by-four. Stuff behind walls you never notice. Nobody even cares. It's out in the dumpster, right? But in the hands of a skilled architect, and a very skilled carpenter, an amazingly beautiful space happens. Are you getting the illustration here? The divine architect, the divine carpenter takes our broken, fragmented, not-filled lives and he moves it into a picture of his treasure. We've become useful for the king, and we've talked about this before, but let me go through this. The, the Bible teaches clearly about our transformation, that every believer, every true believer in Christ will be transformed. Every true believer in Christ won't be transformed at the same pace, so we're all at different levels becoming like Christ. The true believer in Christ is going to be transformed For certain, he will finish the work he started in you. It's not like he makes a promise and pulls it off the table. He'll work it out in your life. And the other part of transformation, and you already know this, and that is that uh, this transformation starts here, on the heart of a man, and it moves to the life of the man. Inside to outside is how this transformation takes place. Here's some proof. John said in 1 John 2, And you can finish these, by the way. I know you're familiar with them. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This whole wonderful understanding from John about what it looks like to be transformed intersects our passage in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. If you're an engineer, you're gonna really dig this outline because it can't get more linear than what Paul does for us in this section. Paul gives us the what, the why, and the how of this becoming like Jesus. And so if you like that outline, there you go. Easy to remember. Let, let's do this. Let's read it together and stop and really seriously ask God to open our hearts to it and to embrace this wonderful conclusion of all the wonderful graces of God that he has shown us in three chapters. So let's, let's uh, read it together. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and it corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. God, what a powerful statement by Paul. Every explanation why we should have hope resides in this passage for your church. Every explanation for transformation and becoming like Jesus is laid out right in front of us. So God, I pray for us, for those who are burdened by their their own lives. And they're questioning whether, God, is there any, any hope? Is there any potential, any possibility ever of overcoming? Let them see this from your vantage point. Let them see what Christ has done. God, let us be motivated now to pursue the life of Christ in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's uh, do this. Let's back up and get a running start at this paragraph so we understand where this section fits in the totality of what Paul has been thinking so far. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, there's a small phrase, I therefore, Paul starts out in verse 1, that... Small little phrase contains the weight of everything that Paul has said so far in three chapters. It is, it is the force behind everything he's about to say in the last three chapters, and it goes something like this. After all God has done for you, church, after everything that he has done for you, your life, my life should look different. That's his That's his argument. I therefore, because of all this. That's kind of Paul's routine, by the way. If you pick up any epistle by Paul and read it, he he does this. He lays down all this amazing absolute truth called doctrine, and then he turns what doctrine does to people and says, and this is how your life should look, over and over again. If you remember Romans, years ago we taught it. Uh, He does this in chapter 12 where he breaks between the theology and the practice, and he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of all the wonderful mercies on display, Live a different life. That's what Paul does over and over again. The first three chapters of Ephesians in this book describe those very mercies of God that we've received. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 3, possibly you remember this verse. This is how Paul starts this whole discussion to the church in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, let me tell you what they are. And he unloads chapter after chapter of every spiritual blessing. We have spent 22 weeks so far soaking in those mercies. You and I, church, you, if you confess Christ, have been elected as his children. You have experienced his redemption. We have our inheritance. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit working in us. We have life where we used to have death. We have a relationship with God, and we have fellowship with the saints. That's what the text has told us so far, right? Have you been through it? Amazing truth, okay? Paul's, therefore, to all that amazing truth. He said it in verse 1. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Have your life match your confession. It is so easy and so classical for people to say, yeah, I believe. Absolutely. I'm for Christ. And then if you put the mirror up to their life, the confession and the life don't match. And and Paul just simply says, well, this, this doctrine, this mercies of God... The blessings that you've received should be lived out. Walk in a manner worthy. He said in verse 15 of chapter four, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And in our little paragraph today, Paul continues with another so what of God's mercies. And what he says simply in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Can I say it another way? I'm gonna tell you the way I think the Ephesians heard it. Paul said, Don't walk like you used to. That's how they heard it. If you remember our introduction to this letter, I don't want you to forget about this church and how it was formed from Gentile people forming into this new church who grew up in the pagan culture of Ephesus. Just to remind you of a couple of those things. Ephesus was known for its immorality. It was uh, the location of one of the seven wonders of the world, a temple to Artemis. Uh, The temple to Diana was there. Some historians call Ephesus the most rank pagan city in Asia Minor during this time. Male-female roles were exchanged. Sexual perversions were rampant. Artemis was the sex goddess, and so the temple was served by thousands of prostitutes, priests, and priestesses, dancers, and singers in this giant One of the seven wonders of the world, there was a quarter of a mile circle around the outside of this temple, this kind of outer courtyard, which contained, uh, was kind of an asylum for criminals who were safe from capture and even punishment as long as they stayed in the circle. So just imagine the worst of the worst of the worst of a pagan culture hovering in a quarter mile circle around the temple to a sex god. How bad do you think it was in Ephesus? Off the hook crazy. I'm certain they invented stuff we can't even spell here at this time, all right? And obviously all of that contributed to an extremely sinful life for the church or for the, the people that came from that area. The fifth century Greek philosopher, Uh, Heraclitus was himself considered a, a, a rank pagan, referred to the people of Ephesus and the place of Ephesus as the darkest of vileness. The morals were lower than animals and the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. How does that feel? A rank pagan saying, you're too dark for me. Well, that nevertheless was the description. And that's the culture these Christians came out of. That's the culture that this church existed in. What God? Everybody for yourself. Now let me just stop for a second. Let's just dream a little bit of what that would have been like. I have to believe, having been raised in that city, raised in that culture, living in that city, there's a potential, high potential, that some of that was still on them. Possibly things they didn't even realize. This is how it happens here. This is what we do. This is how we talk to each other. This is how we live. Don't you think so? Do you think there's also things that they recognize, like bad habits that came from that culture that they struggled to not do anymore because it was so difficult and so rampant and normal? Do you think um, there were places as they walked through the city that they would go, I used to party in there. I know exactly what happens in there. That's where I used to go in. Do you think that all their old friends don't still have their addresses? Do you think they can't still drop by and say, hey man, let's go do what we used to do. Remember, we had such a great time. How intense do you think the temptations were for the church in Ephesus? You got that in your mind? So let me ask you a question. How intense are they for you? because if in my description of the church or the culture in Ephesus, if it rang similar at all it 's because we 're not too far off I, I know the the phrase that people like to say we're we 're kind of a christian culture we 're post we 're totally post we 're at this point an unbelieving culture built on relativism, pleasure, pride in every man for himself. It might not be as bad as Ephesus, but it's bad and you know that. Our leadership, it's the strongest mechanisms to lead is sin. All you gotta do, all you to do is watch. And you can see it everywhere. So let me ask you some questions. Like really let the Holy Spirit sift you. Do you think there's a possibility that being born and raised in this culture, that there's still something hanging on? Do you think there's any possibility that there's remnants of our Ephesus in us? Things that we don't even realize. Th- things, that we, things that we do realize. And what we do with the things we realize is justified. Because our conclusion is everybody else. This is the way it is. It's how you navigate in our culture. Do you think there's a possibility that temptations get the best of us sometimes? Come on. If you don't know, here's the answer. Yes. Do you think the culture's on us a little bit? Do you think there's a possibility at all that we walk more like our culture sometimes than we walk, walk like our Savior? I think so. And so does Paul, by the way. In the mystery of God's will, this, this letter wasn't just preached to the church in Ephesus. It's preached to us. Clearly, Ephesus is a great example of people who live and are absorbed into a bad scene. Well, we are too. So Paul can say to you, like he said to the church in Ephesus, do not live like your culture. Don't live like this influence in in your life. Don't walk, don't live like your culture. And he says this, in the futility of their minds. Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase describes this. This leaves a more permanent mark in my opinion. Don't live like the empty-headed mindless crowd. Thank you, Eugene. Because that is perfect. Don't do it. I want you to notice something in the beginning of verse 17. This is not just Paul's opinion. This this is the Lord's. He says, now I say this and testify in the Lord. This is God's will for us, church. This is God's heart for us. This is God's, by the way, so what? To three chapters of what he's done for us. This is what I want you to do in light of those mercies, in light of those graces. This is what I want you to be. Don't live like that. Don't live like I don't exist. Don't live like I haven't changed you and remade you and given you a mind to think differently, live differently than the culture you came out of. It's a pretty simple command but Paul helps us because he goes on further to give us some reasons why. In fact, he gives us two reasons why, one negative and one positive reason why we shouldn't live like the world we're in. Let me start with a negative one first. It is because... Don't live like the world around us because of the condition of the culture. John Stott outlined it with four particular words. You'll see some of the words in our text, and then he throws in one or two that are different. But here's the words he uses to describe the condition of of the culture that we in. Number one word is hardness. Verse 18, look at it. It's at the end of the verse. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the arrogance, ignorance that is in them due to their hardness, of heart. The Greek for the hardness is a stone harder than marble. My assumption is that's a way for them to say, we don't know anything harder than the human heart. And I would tell, I would tell you if there was something harder than marble, but that's pretty much it. Don't live like the world because their heart is hard. Don't live like the culture because they have a heart of stone. We like to use that phrase. And Paul's point is, church, you don't have a heart of stone, so don't live like you do. They can't respond to God. They're unwilling to respond to God. That's not us. That's not what God does in his bride. There's a a movement in our hearts. There's a sensitivity in our hearts. There's a conviction, a new arrived sensitivity to sin, and that's ours now. Paul described this condition in Romans chapter one, this hardness condition. Maybe this rings a bell. This condition suppresses the truth about God. It knows that God is revealed in creation but won't give him credit for it. Will not honor God. Just totally ignores the whole thing. Won't give thanks. That's the heart that is hard as stone. second word that that kind of describes this condition of our culture is darkness. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 8. And they're darkened in their understanding. Hardness of heart is where darkness of heart comes from. You can't see. The obvious is not obvious anymore. The clear isn't clear anymore because the hardness has blinded the eyes. The gospel, the good news, Jesus is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's a total darkness, right? I can't perceive something good for me. So, Paul says the Culture is darkened in their understanding. It has the idea or the meaning of having no spiritual understanding whatsoever. Let me just remind you again of what Paul said in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God nor give him thanks, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were, here's the word, darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Darkness. I don't know. I'll just do whatever I want. I don't care how bad it hurts. I don't care how bad it hurts the people I love or how bad it hurts me. That's darkness. You can see the darkness around us. Darkness is best seen in that it loves itself. And its ideals, all of its ideals, flow out of a concept and understanding, at least in their mind, that there is no such thing as God or God is dead or God doesn't care. Whatever version you want, that's how they build their structures. God has nothing to say to me. That's darkness, right? Let me add one. Here's a third word deadness. Verse 18, the phrase is, is the second phrase. They're darkened in understanding. Here's the phrase alienated from the life of God. The NIV uses the word separated. So if you want to put it together in that way, separated from life separated from life. There's a deadness. If you need an explanation, you haven't been paying attention. If you need an explanation to the brokenness of our world, of our culture, if you want to explain hatred and racism and anger and pride and wars and on and on and on, you want to explain broken homes and anger and violence, you want to explain unforgiveness, you want to explain all of it, well, here you go, dead. Spiritually dead, unresponsive. That's where we started in Ephesians. One last word that John Stott uses to describe an unbeliever's condition. In verse 19, he uses the word reckless, and I'll explain it. Look at verse 19 again. <clears throat> and they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to the practice of every kind of impurity. The NIV uses the word lost all sensitivity. I like that phrase. I think it helps us understand what he's talking about. It means beyond feeling. So that's why NIV interprets it, um, lost all sensitivity. In other words, now get this. The culture has pushed through the pain of sin to the point that it doesn't hurt anymore. And so they give themselves to it. That's just what happens. Leprosy, you've probably heard this before, is a great illustration of what we're talking about. Doctors tell us, listen listen to this, that a leper's flesh does not rot and fall off like you would imagine. That's sort of what I pictured when I was a kid. They got some kind of skin disease and it just starts to, you know, eat their flesh like that flesh-eating disease you see on the news a lot. Well, that's not what leprosy is. Here's what leprosy is. Leprosy is a skin disease that develops sick patches of abnormal growth, numbing large areas. The numb areas along with enlarged nerves, get this, remove sensation, leading to a host of other problems. We rely on sensation, specifically pain, to tell us when we're hurting ourselves. That might seem like a basic concept, but those who have no feeling can suffer from cuts and burns before they even realize what's wrong, injuries that would be mild, with warning signs can become severe. You understand? Perfect illustration. You and I begin our lives with warning signs about sin conviction, guilt, sadness, discouraged, disappointment. Can we go on? Things that affect us because of our behavior. They are clearly things we don't like. Someone once. Uh, a long time ago, kind of used an illustration, I think it works, and said, you know, the heart was born, the human heart was born with an understanding of what sin can do. It's sort of like a cockpit in an airplane is filled with all sorts of lights and buzzers that help a pilot keep the plane in the air. So, for instance, I've never been in a cockpit, but my assumption is that there's all sorts of, I don't know, helpful tools that keep the plane straight and true. It'll tell you when landing gear's up, when it's down. It'll tell you when you're level flight, when you're not level flight, when you're upside down. They have all sorts of things, and my assumption is bells will go off and lights will go off. Now, what if the pilot said, man, those warnings, they're bad. They're no fun. Ringing in my ears and blinding my eyes, I know what I'll do. There's two options. Hear the warning and change your actions or get a big hammer and smash all the lights. Right? I prefer the pilot who does the former. And yet, using that illustration, the heart that Paul has described here, the heart that is hard, dark, and dead, becomes reckless, and we feel nothing because we've spent an entire life smashing lights. Don't feel it anymore. I had conviction, bam. I had disappointment, bam. I felt guilty, bam. And we plow straight ahead and that sensitivity's gone. We've become callous, Paul says. Don't feel it anymore. It makes no difference. And the bottom, as far as the scriptures are concerned, is when all sensitivity to sin is gone and we start to flaunt our sin, bad becomes good and good becomes bad and welcome to America. Now I realize that description sounds like as bad as it could possibly be, and in some people I'm certain it is. Not everybody goes to the ultimate bottom of this description. But nevertheless, Paul is talking about the unbelieving mind, and he says it's numb, numb to sin. It is reckless with sin. It is dead to God's authority because it's become its own authority. It describes the heart without Christ as having become so dark that it's totally lost. It has a petrified soul. That is the condition. Now, stop. Do you want to know the reason why we're not to live like our world? It's not complicated. Paul drags up all of that stuff to say, and that's not you. Your heart is not dark. Your heart is not dead. You're not numb to sin, church. God has resurrected you. There's something beating in you. You know it. You've been convicted by it. I know there are difficult days, but you're not this. That's why you cannot live like your world, amen? Because you're different. Paul has already told us in Ephesians chapter two, you were dead, past tense, in your transgressions and sins. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us what? Alive. It's already done. You were dead. You are now alive. That description is not you. That's why you don't live like your world. Something beats inside of us. There's a conviction inside of us. There's a sensitivity in us. Not a perfection, but something that never existed before. You get it? That's the negative reason why, number one. Here's the second reason that Paul gives us. It's exactly his next point, this idea of of life. In fact, I'm going to borrow a phrase from James Boyce, and here's the positive reason why. Because you've been to the school of Christ. That's why. Look at verses 20 and 21. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. <clears throat> that, I don't prefer that word assuming. It kind of leaves it hanging out there nebulously like we're not certain. The NIV describes it this way. It says when you heard of Christ, not assuming you heard Christ. He's, the, the tense of all this is that you have not assuming that you have, that you have heard Christ. You've been to the school of Christ. Paul lays out for us this school, if you want to use that illustration, by three different phrases. You have learned Christ, you have heard Christ, and you've been taught in Christ. Those are three things he says in these two verses, right? In other words, he's the subject, he's the teacher, and he's the atmosphere of what you believe. That helps, right? So let's go through that just a little bit. Paul says that we've learned Christ, and that's a big deal because it's not just that you learn about Christ. You learn him. It's the only place in all of Scripture where it describes learning a person. And not about. It's the only place it ever happens. The reason why we're Christians, church, isn't because you learned about Jesus. You're a Christian because the gospel is personal. You're a Christian because you made a decision to follow Jesus. It's personal. He's our Lord and Savior, right? In the language we, we use. This new life we've talked about and we're gonna talk about more is only possible because we are inseparably linked already to Christ forever. The phrase that Paul uses more than any other phrase in the book of Ephesians to make that point is this phrase, in Christ. You in Christ. It's the overwhelming truth that he teaches in Ephesians. Get it, church, what you have in Christ. We have it. He bore our sins. We receive his righteousness. Christ is the subject. The second thing that Christ is the teacher. My ESV says um, that you heard about him. The word about doesn't appear in the Greek. It's not in the original language. So if you just kind of drag about out, then you see kind of what he says. You've, you've heard Christ. And I don't know of a better way as long as you have some kind of understanding to describe what it means to be saved and how it happens. You heard Jesus. That's how it happens for everybody. You've heard him speak, not just about him from somebody else. You actually heard him. Every one of us who call him Lord have heard him. Every time you read his word, he is speaking. Every time you hear someone preach, he is preaching. Someone once said, whenever true preaching takes place, Jesus is invisible in the pulpit. His voice is personal. Can't tell you how many times someone said, hey, it feels like you read my mind. No, I don't read minds. I have no idea. But Jesus is teaching, so therefore it makes sense that he would be very personal to you and your circumstance, Right? Jesus is the teacher. He's the subject. The last thing in this text is that he's the atmosphere. Verse 21 says, you were taught in him, or you were taught in Christ. Let me go through a series of questions so to explain what that means, and it'll, it'll make sense. Where do we come to understand truth? Where do we come to or learn about Jesus or learn about what Jesus teaches? Word of God. But let me give you something more intimate in a relationship with Jesus. He is the atmosphere we learn in, right? He is where it happens. The environment of everything we will ever know about, Christ and what he says, comes in this condition, in Christ. Everything else is foolishness if you don't have Christ, right? Jesus said in John 15, apart from me you can do nothing. Let me add, and I'm not being heretical when I add, Apart from him, you can know nothing. You won't perceive the gospel. You will not embrace Jesus. You will not confess your sins unless he changes your heart. He is the environment. We are taught Christ in Christ. So let me back up and get to the beginning again just to kind of build on each other. Paul commands a very simple commandment. Don't live like the world that you live around. Let me give you two reasons. One is, your heart isn't like the world's heart around you because I've changed it. And two is, you've been to the school of Jesus. That's why you don't live like the world. Now, how does that happen? How are we not to live like the world around us? Let me give you two thoughts and I'll try to unpack it briefly. One is by the finished work of Christ and two is by putting off the sinful flinches of a dead man. You got it? One is the finished work of Christ, and the other is by putting off the sinful flinches of a dead man. I'm going to use the NIV because I think it's clearer in uh, chapter 4, verses 20. 1 through 24. I'll add verse 20 here for a second. He says, but that's not the way you learned Christ when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught past tense with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It is absolutely essential that you know that the three verses here are Paul describing what's already true for us who are in Christ. Already done. The old self has been put to death. The mind of the believer has been renewed and you have been made new. You have learned him, you've been taught by him, you're in him. Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in new Christ, he's a what? Right now, right? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Colossians 3, he says, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Those things already have happened. The dying you has already died. The renewed you has already been renewed and the new you has already arrived in the sequence of salvation. It's already true, okay? The only explanation you could possibly have for loving Jesus and hating sin whatsoever is that it's already happened. This new life has already happened. God did something. People don't save themselves. People who are dead and dull and dark, they don't sort out the problem and they don't find the solution. God dives into time and space and he peels back the hardness of the heart and he gives faith to a person. And he expresses it. New eyes, new, new sight, new confessions. Once a heart of stone, now a heart of flesh, right? The only explanation for loving Jesus and hating sin is that the foolish, unthinking, suppressing the truth mind of Romans 1 has already been changed. If your mind wasn't changed and you were still suppressing the truth, calling God a joke, you would never be saved. Something had to happen to your mind and it's already taken place. It's the work of God alone that saves us and changes us. How could we possibly ever not live like our world? Well, Paul gives it to us right here. Verses 22, 23, and 24. God through Christ must destroy the old me. God through Christ must change my mind. God through Christ must make me like Jesus. Already taking place. Amen? Okay. And. This is one of those passages where you could preach two different angles and go, oh, that sounds right too. Well, that sounds right too. Let me just describe to you beyond it being an absolute doctrinal certainty, what Paul's described, it's also an expression of how to go and behave. It just is. In the transforming work of God in our lives as Christians, we spend the rest of our life putting off the sinful flinches of a dead man. And that's what we do. Already dead. But there's some still flinches, right? Let me describe an illustration. I think it works. A couple years ago, my family and I were up in Sedona staying at a cabin, and we went for a hike. And we were on a hike up a hill, and all the kids kind of got separated. My wife and I were together, coming back, a little tired. And as we're walking down the trail, a big five-foot rattlesnake right in the middle of the trail. And as a protective father, I said, there's just no way I'm going to let that thing live. I don't want it sneaking out in some hike. I don't know where it is. So I took a big old rock, and I blew it up. Okay, I crushed it. There was nothing left to its head. It was gone. It was it was dead. <laughs> but lo and behold, I looked and the rattle went brrr, creepy, right? There's no head. It's dead. That's a perfect illustration of our trouble. Our sinful flinches are the rattle of a dead man. They're just there. I'm dead. That's creepy. (laughs) When I get angry, it's not Christ in me. It can't be. It's the rattle. When I lust, it's not the new man. It's the rattle. When when I'm bitter and angry and I resent, I want to hold on to it, I want to play the victim card, when I want to be that person, it's not Christ. It's the rattle, because it's dead, but it still makes noise, right? So Paul says, because you're brand new, strip off the old ways of coping. Strip off the ways of meeting your needs without a Savior. Just take that stuff off. Whenever there's still a rattle in your thinking, well then pick this thing up and renew your thinking in God's word. Whenever there's a rattle of selfishness and pride, then put on the likeness of Jesus and walk humbly and serve someone. Do you understand? It's both. God has made us new. So let's set aside the old habits. And here's how you do it. It's not complicated. Confess them and reject them. That's putting off. Call it what it is and leave it behind that's putting off. But there's another thing we do, we wear the life of Christ. It's the action of replacing the bad habits with godly ones. And I don't know what you've ever been taught, but let me just tell you an absolute truth. Bad habits never end by removal alone. Bad habits end by replacement. If you simply say, I want that to go away, and you don't flood that hole with something better You got no shot. That is the putting off and the putting on of what Paul says we do because we're made new in Christ. Call sin what it is and reject it. Put on the life of Christ and walk new. That replacement equals transformation. Jesus is our replacement, amen? Let's pray together. God, help us get this, not just in our minds, but in our actions. We need your help, Lord. So make us ever-growing sensitive to our sin. Help us confess it and reject it and put on the life of Christ, this new self that Jesus died to give us. We pray it in his name, amen.